just got the word today Abby went away To be with the Lord and your dad Who loves you so Happy for you, that's for sure But darling, I hit the floor When I heard the news that you had left this earth Abby, I'm gonna miss your smile And miss the sound of your voice when you call my name I'm gonna miss your smile The way you'd fill up the room Things won't be the same Without you around Didn't get to say goodbye You know it hurts and makes me cry To never get the chance to give you one more hug I know that we'll meet again But honey, I don't know when But till that day I know that I'll remember your smile Abby, I'm gonna miss your smile And miss the sound of your voice when you'd call my name Abby, I'm gonna miss your smile And the way you'd fill up the room Things won't be the same Without you around But I know That you and your dad Are singing before the Lord With all of the saints And his holy angels Hearing and seeing things that words could never describe And our minds could not comprehend Oh no, oh no I'm gonna miss your smile And miss the sound of your voice when you call my name I'm gonna miss your smile And the way you'd fill up the room Things won't be the same Without you around Smile, and I'm gonna miss your smile. 
پمیمیان بسیاسمم Listen up, girls. Hey there, Lexi. We are here for you. Hey there, Lexi. God is with you too. Hey there, Lexi. God will find a way. Hey there, Lexi. Trust Him every day. This I know God has a plan. You are safely in His hand. Don't you worry about a thing. Jesus is your Savior King. He'll get you through the heartbreak, my dear Alice. The Lord is on your side, my dear Alice. His arms are open wide, my dear Alice. He's watching over you, my dear Alice. Watch what God will do. For you he sent his son to die, to give you hope he heard you cry. Don't you be afraid, my dear. Trust the Lord and do not fear. Loves you like his son, hey little Amber. The angels follow you, hey little Amber. They tell God what you do, hey little Amber. Pray to God each night, hey little Amber. God's gonna get things right. Jesus loves his little ones. You are one of many sons. Little girl, sleep well tonight. Knowing that you're in God's side The Lord is always with you, my dear Lexi We are here for you, Alice and Amber We are here for you, my dear Lexi God is there for you, Alice and Amber God is there for you You are in our hearts and prayers Through our church, God shows He cares Always know that Pastor Bill Loves you now and always will Though he's bald and kind of fat And doesn't like to pet a cat I think I hear you laughing We love you, Lexi La, 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 la We love you, Alice La, 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 la We love you, Amber La, 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 la God is always with you, my dear Lexi and Alice and
All right, uh, good evening to all of you. Could you turn your Bibles to the book of Romans? Could you turn to Romans chapter 15, verse 7, please? Romans chapter 15, verse 7. I just lose a little volume there? Oh. Romans 15, 7. Thanks. It's good to have uh, you guys here tonight. And uh, Titus is back behind the controls. Eric did a great job Sunday, but we missed Titus and Jody, too. It's good they got back safely. We're all, he's like, did you really miss us? Of course I, we missed you. I'm crying out loud. What kind of... <laughs> of course we missed you guys. You don't think so? Jeez. Your wife more than you, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Had to get that shot in there. So anyways, good to see you back, and good to see you guys here this evening. Nice hot day. It's great. I love this. This is great. May, it's, was it 90 today? or eight? No, my, my thing's about 80 or 70s, you know, close to 80. Yeah. Nice, hot, sticky weather. That's great. You could always use an air conditioner, but, you know, the great thing is there's no snow on the ground, there's no ice, and I love it. And it is true, as you get older, and you can just ask Barbara McKinney that right now, you know, as you get older, <laughs> I'm cruising for a bruising. Just when you get older, you like the warmer weather. You, the cold weather, I can't, no wonder people move to Arizona. So watch out, you know, maybe, in, like, next year we'll move the church to Arizona someplace dry. <laughs> How's that? Does that sound good? Arizona? Yeah. Anyways, well, we can go there. We can come back in the I like, I like, I, I love Iowa, obviously, but, you know, the, uh, we could go there in the winter, and then we can come back in the, like, the birds in the spring. Yeah, we'll be like Dick Oberite. We'll be a snow church. Yeah, right, exactly. Then, anyways, and uh, good to see Ashley's back. She's feeling better. He was telling me about you. We weren't feeling well, so. So it's good, nice to see when my prayers get answered. Say, okay, she's okay. Cross that one off. <laughs> Don McKinney's okay, all right. You should do that. Add some more. Add some more, yeah. Believe me, my list is down to the floor. But, um, oh, for him? No, not for him. Well, I already got him. I already had prayers for him because of his new. <laughs> he needs it. I'm just, you're just getting beat up today. That's, let's face it. Sharon's not here, so I'll go after her, you know. Anyways. All right, but... Uh, Enough of that. Enough of me having fun at everybody else's expense. But anyways, uh, we're going to, uh, it's, we're getting close uh, to the, uh, in the book of Romans, where uh, beginning in Romans 1.16 and all the way up to Romans 15.13, Paul presents his gospel, and it's the main argument of the Roman epistle. Now, we're going to be noting Romans 15.12 this evening, and then uh, this week, uh, you know, I think we'll finish it Thursday, We'll finish off verse 13, and that will complete the main argument of the epistle. And then from then on, there's some miscellaneous items throughout the rest of the epistle, which are important. Obviously, uh, God the Holy Spirit saw fit to keep it in the canon of Scripture. And it gives us, a, the rest of the book is going to give us some, I'm already working on uh, verse 20, uh, Romans 15, 24. But we're going to see as we go further into chapter 15, Paul gives us his insight into ministry. His, he gives us his attitude about the Roman believers. He gives us his, uh, his uh, insight in how he looked at uh, ministry, his ministry to the Gentiles, and that being an apostle of the Gentiles. And it, it's, it's going to help us because it's going to give us a good attitude about how we should look toward the world and uh, how we should look toward, uh, have our attitude should be toward the gospel in relation to the rest of the world. And uh, so it's, we have a lot of fun stuff coming up. And then we get to chapter 16, he starts talking, uh, giving his greetings to all these people in Rome that he knew. So he had a lot of contacts in Rome, which get, makes it, helps us to understand why, you know, he commended the Roman believers and, 
and, you know, for their obedience and that they were doing everything. And they, he was confident that they could admonish one another and they were filled with all knowledge. I mean, he knew that because he got reports about the Roman believers and uh, about how wonderful of a, a wonderful church they were. But uh, he also is going to uh, mention his travel plans and that he's going to go to Spain, but he's going to stop off in Rome. And as we saw in the study of the book of Philippians, he got to Rome, but he didn't get... He wasn't able to go right immediately to Spain. He did after he got released from his from prison because he, remember he got arrested, as it record, as it's recorded in the book of Acts. He got arrested for allegedly bringing a Gentile into the Jewish section of the, the Herodian temple in Jerusalem, and uh, so he was uh, incarcerated for for five six years, two years in Rome, where he was awaiting his appeal before Caesar, and that's where he wrote the prison epistles: Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. So we studied that when we studied the book of Philippians. So. Uh, Paul does get to Rome, and he spent two years there, but he was under house arrest, chained to a Roman Praetorian soldier, a Roman guard. So uh, it's kind of interesting. And then eventually church history says, I think it's in Clement, uh, it's, a, it's, not, it's not part of the canon of Scripture, but there's, church history says that he did end up going to Spain. And it's, what's going to be cool, too, is we're going to see in chapter 15, he, he mentions that he, he preached the gospel, he, 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 he was establishing, establishing churches among the Gentiles, in regions where no other apostle had, you know, given the gospel. And that was from Jerusalem, the, ter- the regions, provinces from Jerusalem, all the way up to Illyricum, which is almost all the way to Rome and Spain anyways, which is, a, like, I, I, I had this, I'll show you when, I, when we do it, but I had this uh, computer cro- program, Logos, Logos, and it, uh, it has this map, and it can actually gives you the, it can give you, I can start in Jerusalem and go all the way up to Illy- the Roman province of Illyricum or all the way to Rome, and it tells you how many miles he covered. This is just amazing. It's like, it's like about the same amount of miles it took for me to get from Massachusetts to Iowa. I think it was like, we measured it was like 1,400 miles. That's the distance Paul traveled in his ministry to, to, to planting churches throughout the Roman Empire. So this guy was a, quite a, an individual. And we sometimes forget that, you know, everybody thinks, oh, Paul was all this, this great guy, and he was, and he was a great believer. But, that, you know, we forget that he had help doing what he did. I mean, he, he had Epaphroditus, he had an army of guys who were pastors, he had Timothy, he had Epaphroditus, he had Tychicus, he had uh, uh, all these individuals who were, uh, that were uh, men of God, and he sent them and, and to, to, to start these churches, or to, uh, you know, he would plant the church, and then he would uh, have uh, ordained men who had the gift to pass the teacher, and he would send guys like Timothy or Tychicus or Epaphroditus and Titus into those places to make sure that they were doing what they should be doing, to check on them and everything. But also it's interesting that Paul had total confidence in the Holy Spirit. You know, he, he didn't stay there for five, ten years with the churches. He, he stayed there for a while, and then he had to move on. But, he, you know, people who had the gift to pass the teacher were raised up by God, by the Holy Spirit, and then they were the pastors of these churches. And uh, that's the case with Roman believers. You know, everybody thinks, you know, Paul didn't start the church in Rome, and neither did, uh, and neither did Peter. And so uh, we know that. We studied that in our introduction. So there were anonymous pastors that actually were the ones who taught the people in Rome. And remember, Rome just didn't have one big church. There was, Rome was a city, and like Boston or Cedar Rapids in New York, there's different churches, and they were met in homes, different churches strewn around the city of Rome. And so we see that God had raised up men, uh, men who had the gift to pass the teacher who were teaching the Roman believers. And I guess, evidently, from what Paul says in this epistle, they did a great job, though he doesn't even mention those guys by name. Uh, he might have, in the, uh, but he doesn't say that they were pastors. He might have mentioned them, some of them, in Romans 16. 
We'll get when we we'll we'll, view, we'll uh, discuss that when we get to chapter 16. But a lot of good stuff coming. A preview of coming attractions. And as I let out Sunday, and uh, you never know what the Holy Spirit's going to have you say. But I've been working on an Old Testament book, and uh, we're going to go to the book of Jonah. And uh, I, you know, you might don't be familiar with Jonah because I get a lot of stuff in Jonah that you, pro- you I know you've never heard before. There's a lot of cool stuff in Jonah, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. And it's. Uh, it is a, so, it's, it's such a controversial and much, and I'm not just talking about the fact that Jonah gets swallowed by a, a, a large, massive fish or a sperm whale, as some guys say. You know, that's not a big deal because in history, as I was going to show you, there's a lot of guys that get swallowed by whales and great white sharks, believe it or not, that have been recorded in history. And there was a guy in England, they called him, the, in the 1800s, they called him the latter day, the modern day Jonah. I mean, so this history is filled with accounts of, People having happened, what happened to Jonah happened to them, except Jonah was there three days in the belly of the, the great fish, it says in the Hebrew. And, of course, Jesus Christ says that that did take place because he, he mentions that. He says, just as uh, Jonah was three days in the, in the belly of the whale, three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be, and he'll rise from the dead. Jo- and it's also, in, I won't tell you everything, I get a lot of cool stuff ready for Jonah. So I'm working on it, researching on it. So that'll be in this summer that we'll do it. And then... Uh, that's uh, you're going to find it's going to go a lot faster than than uh, than Genesis was uh, because Jonah's only four chapters. The other thing is uh, it, Jonah's going to go faster than Romans because you got to remember Romans is a different type of genre. Uh, uh, Jonah is a narrative, and uh, Romans is more like a dissertation. It's an argument. Now, what I try to do is I try what, with Romans. What you have to do to teach Romans. You have to go by verse by verse because there's thoughts in each verse. Whereas a narrative, you can cover more ground. Like Genesis, we could cover more ground because there was a thought in three or four verses. You know, Romans, there's several thoughts in three or four verses. There's, there's three or four, maybe ten thoughts in three or four verses. So you, there's, you, can't, you can't treat um, Romans like you do Genesis because they're different genres, different types of uh, liter- uh, literature. And there's many t- different types of literature in the Bible. So um, it's, you're going to find Jonah's going to go by fast just for that reason. One, it's a narrative. And, and two, it's only four, ch- four chapters. And then we'll go back to the New Testament. We'll go get an epistle. And it, it, I'm, this is all planning that I live, you know, that's in that long time. Uh, we'll go back. And I, I'm thinking of going back to the New Testament after doing Jonah and doing Colossians. I like to do Colossians, but I'm, th- I'm praying on that. So... Keep that in prayer for me as well, and then go back to the Old Testament again. So I'm going to try. I'm going to try to get some smaller books because I want to cover more ground, and uh, we'll be able to cover. Uh, you know, we've covered two massive books. See, if I go to Exodus now, that would take us probably two, three years to finish Exodus. There's just so much in there, and then uh, so I'm going to go to. I want to go to Jonah, and then we'll go back to the New Testament. We'll probably do Colossians. But anyways, that's the coming uh, uh, for preview of coming attractions. So look at you should be at Romans fifteen seven. Let's take that moment of silent prayer as we normally do. And for those, uh, this next few moments is, are for those who are, might be listening to the class, listening to our listening into our ministry for the first time on Pal Talk, or viewing the website, or listening to the audio on the website, or hearing a CD for the first time, and being exposed to this ministry the, for the first time. But before we hear this, what the Spirit says to us through the teaching of the Word of God. We take a moment, a few, a few moments of silent prayer so we could confess our sins to the Father as it states in 1 John 1, 9. 
Paul uses the terminology judging the body rightly in 1 Corinthians 11. And uh, we're to do this so that we can be restored to fellowship. And we maintain that fellowship by bringing our thoughts into obedience to the Spirit who speaks to us through the teaching of the Word of God. And uh, that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 and Colossians 3.16, which bear the same results because the Spirit speaks to us through the teaching of the Word of God. He inspires the Scriptures for that matter. And if there's anything that's disturbing or distracting to you, do what 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. So in the privacy of our very own royal priesthood, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day to learn about your plan to become like your son, Jesus Christ, and also your plan for us as a, as a ministry to get the gospel out to both Jew and Gentile throughout uh, Iowa and the rest of the world. And we thank you, Father, for the individuals that you've raised up here in this geographical location and those are part of our extended congregation that are serious students of the Word of God that have been faithful giving of their time, talent, and treasure in praying for this ministry. We pray that you would continue to raise up positive volition in our ministry, continue to break down the barriers that are hindering uh, that from taking place and uh, that Satan has put up these barriers. And also, I pray that you would continue to break down barriers Satan has put up that is hindering people in our own ministry from uh, taking uh, more of an active part in the ministry and becoming more and more dedicated and devoted to you and attending Bible class more often. We just pray, Father, for that. We also thank you, Father, for... The, uh, this study in the book of Romans and all the studies that we've had since we've been out here in Iowa started this ministry and we just thank you for all the blessings and all the answered prayers and all the deliverances and we just uh, thank you also for uh, this study in chapter 15 and that your plan was from eternity past that uh, your plan of redemption included not only Jews but also Gentiles and we just thank you and praise you Father for your so great salvation that you provided for us and your grace policy and the gift of your Son and the gift of the Spirit. We thank you for all the wonderful things that you've done for us as uh, Gentile believers in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we also, uh, Father, we just uh, pray for this evening's class that uh, everything would go soundly uh, technically in the building and give Titus uh, uh, wisdom and uh, running the sound and doing the recordings. And we pray that the sound on Pal Talk would be fine. And we also pray, Father, also for um, the people in the audience, that they would uh, be, uh, have uh, good manners and thoughtfulness of others, no one doing anything that's disturbing or distracting to those who are serious students of the Word of God. Help us in the audience to concentrate, to pay strict attention to what the Spirit will be saying to us this evening so that we can understand what the application is, so that we could gain not only uh, the application personally, but also to get a, gain a greater understanding of you, Father, and your great plan of redemption for both Jew and Gentiles. 
And we pray, Father, that you would give grace to the communicator, empower him to deliver your counsel this evening in a fashion that would minister to your people and bring glory to you and your Son. We pray that as a result of this Bible class, all of us would continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and a greater love and appreciation for who and what you are, Father, and who and what your Son is in the Spirit, and what you've done for us in the past through them, are doing for us now, and will, you, will do for us in the future. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, this evening we're going to, as I noted earlier, study Romans fifteen twelve, and uh, we're going to see that Paul uh, quotes the fourth of uh, the final uh, uh, Old Testament scripture of uh, the final one he's quoted. This will be the fourth one that he's quoted in Romans fifteen nine through 12, which uh, affirm, uh, substantiates his claim that God's redemptive purpose through his son not only included the, Gen- uh, the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And as I said before, we take for granted that Gentiles are included in the plan of salvation because for centuries the church has been predominantly um, composed of Gentile believers. However, in the first century, definitely in the first five decades of the first century, uh, you know, the, the third, fourth, and fifth decade, we saw that it was pri- uh, a lot of Jewish believers. And that's not to say there's no Jewish believers today. There are. But uh, back then, in the first century, before the, when Paul wrote this in 57 AD from Corinth, you know, there was still a lot of Jewish believers and, and mixed in with a lot of Gentile believers. But uh, the Jews, remember, they had, a, they had a racial prejudice toward the Gentiles, and they... You know, even though their Old Testament scriptures made it clear that Gentiles are going to uh, are in part of God's plan of salvation, that God has planned for them to receive eternal salvation through His Son, Jewish believers had a lot of racial prejudice to a, a, a Gentile believers at times, and uh, the Jews per se as a race had a lot of animosity toward the Gentiles and vice versa. And of course, God's plan was for them to be a kingdom of priests, the nation of Israel. And they failed in that duty. They were to, they were to evangelize the world. God used, wanted to use the nation of Israel to speak about himself, to use the nation of Israel as a vehicle, as the instrument, to evangelize the rest of the world, the nations of the world. Of course, his son comes through the Jews. He's a, he's a Jew himself of the tribe of Judah. And, of course, he, he this uh, Jewish Messiah, provides salvation for not only the Jews but also the Gentiles. So what Paul's trying to do here in Romans 15 verses 8 through 12, he's trying to kill two birds with one stone. He's trying to make clear to the Jewish believers that don't have any racial prejudice towards your Gentile brothers in Christ and uh, accept them, welcome them into fellowship with yourself because it's in your Old Testament scriptures that Gentiles would come to the Lord and worship the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, that's predicted in the Old Testament. And the other side of the coin, he also in these verses by quoting these Old Testament scriptures, Paul's also making clear to the Gentile believers that their salvation, their so great salvation, is based upon God's faithfulness to the promises to the, uh, the promises that he made to the patriarchs of Israel, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, whose name got changed to Israel. They are, the progenitors of, they are the progenitors of the nation of Israel, and God made promises to them. As we saw with uh, Abraham, God made personal promises, national promises to Abraham, and uh, universal or his, uh, universal promises, meaning he would provide salvation through a de- to the Gentiles for the nations of the world through a descendant of his who history has, ter- uh, has uh, 
revealed to us is Jesus of Nazareth. So we see that Paul is doing a, a mighty thing here through the scriptures. He's using Old Testament scriptures to substantiate his claims, support his affirmation in Romans 15, 8, and also the first statement in verse 9, that God's redemptive purpose through his Son not only includes the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Look at verse 7, please. Romans fifteen seven. Therefore, accept one another. In context, he's talking about the weak and the strong. Remember, the weak are primarily composed of the Jewish believers, the strong Gentile believers. How do I know that? Well, because the issues that Paul raised in chapter 14 had to do with the ceremonial aspect of the law, and Gentiles were not brought up in the law. Jews were. And so we see here that he's addressing the weak and the strong. Accept one another means welcome each other into fellowship. Have fellowship with each other. Just as, as we saw, it's causal because of because Christ also accepted us. That's why the Jew, both strong and the weak, Jew and Gentile believers, were to accept each other and have fellowship with each other and not divide over non-essentials. And then he says, this is to the glory of God. As we saw, that's connected to the command, that purpose clause. So if they accept one another, they will bring glory to God. How so? By manifesting the love of God, they will manifest the character and nature of God. And when you're manifesting the character and nature of God through your conduct, you are glorifying God. And then he goes on to say, in verse 8, which is going to give the reason for his statement in verse 7 that Christ also accepted Jew and Gentile believers. For I say, or I affirm, that Christ has become a servant, or is a servant, to the circumcision, a title for the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God, that means the fa- because of the faithfulness of God, to the promises of the, to, he made to the patriarchs. And so he says, and here's the first purpose for Christ becoming a servant to the Jews, because of the faithfulness of God, to confirm the promises given to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then connected to it, he says in verse 9, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy or his grace policy, as we saw. Now, to affirm that, to substantiate that, what he said in verses 8 and 9, he's going to quote Old Testament scriptures. He's going to actually string four Old Testament scriptures together. Uh, each of these scriptures, these scriptures, these four scriptures, uh, uh, actually take, are taken from three major divisions of the Old Testament scriptures. Remember, the Jews divided up into the law and the prophets, or Moses and the prophets, they said. Jesus makes uh, co- comments on that. He notes that. So did Paul in Romans chapter uh, 1. He talked about the law and the prophets. Or Romans chapter 3, excuse me. And so he talked about that. But also, today, actually, Jews and uh, Gentile uh, Christian scholars, uh, they divide up the, uh, the Old Testament into the law and the prophets and the writings. So from each of, this, each of these three major divisions of the Old Testament, Paul quotes from. Quotes, quotes from. So it's going to catch the ear and the eye of both Jew and Gentile believers. Now he's going to quote primarily, he's going to quote from the Septuagint translation in these verses. He's going to quote from the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew Bible. And that's, the Septuagint is, a, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And that was the, that was the Old Testament scriptures for the first century church. And remember, the Jew, and this is, this is proven out historically, and also from the text, because we can see that he's quoting verbatim many times, the Septuagint, Paul is. So we see that in 30, and, and the, because of the dispersions, the deportations throughout Israel's history, they were deported to pagan heathen lands. And so as time went on, the, uh, Alexander the Great came on the scene, and Koine Greek uh, became the language of the Mediterranean world. 
all the lands that Alexander the Great conquered. And so around 300 BC, in a city of in Egypt called Alexandria, we see that 370 scholars, history tells us, came together, Jewish scholars, and they had a, came together with a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible because the majority of Jews had lost the Hebrew tongue. And of course, the rabbis knew the Hebrew tongue. They were trained in that. But most of the people did not understand the Hebrew or could read from it. So they needed a translation. Uh, just like we need an English translation of the original languages because we don't, uh, Hebrew and Greek is not our mother tongues. So we see that that's what they needed. And so Gentile believers who are not brought up in the Old Testament scriptures, and they definitely wouldn't be trained in Old Test- in Hebrew, they needed a translation as well. So it's interesting how God brought about the Septuagint translation because he knew that a couple of centuries, three centuries later in the first century, that Christians, Gentile Christians, believers in his son Jesus Christ, would have to have some kind of translation for their Old, for their Old Testament Hebrew because they didn't speak Hebrew. So there's the sovereignty and the providence of God uh, in the translation of the Septuagint. So we see Paul's going to quote from that. That was the, the Roman church's Bible, okay, both for both Jew and Gentile Christians. And so this is what he's going to do. He's going to string together four Old Testament scriptures to support his affirmation that God's redemptive purpose through his son included not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. So he says in verse 9, the B part, as it is written, and it's interesting, the word graphos in the perfect tense, it actually says that what, you're, what I'm writing here now, uh, quoting from the Old Testament, has application for the reader. Okay? So he says, therefore... And he's quoting here, and he says, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. That's Jesus Christ talking to the Father. So this is what's going to happen during the millennial reign. Christ is going to give praise to the Father while he stands or sits among the Gentiles. And he will also sing the praises of the Father's name. That's what the word name means. It talks about the character and nature of the Father. And then he says in verse 10, Again, he says, or it says, as we saw, because he's quoting from the law now, Deuteronomy 32, 43, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. His people are the Jews. And then again, he says in verse 11, praise, quoting Psalm 117, verse 1, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples, that's again speaking to the Jews, praise him. So he noticed there, and those scriptures that Jew and Gentile believers are in the future predicted to worship the Lord together. And this is what we're seeing in our Day of the Lord series in the Millennial Reign. Jew and Gentile are going to worship together Jesus Christ and God the Father and the power of the Spirit. So this would get, this is going to catch the reader. The Roman believers, remember the Jewish believers are going to say, oh, there it is. Now they knew these things, but he's reminding them as we saw uh, as he says in Romans fifteen fifteen, So he's reminding the Jewish believers, this is, you can't, don't be, you accept those Gentile believers because it's been predicted in your own Bible that they're going to worship with you, the Lord. And it's also going to say to the Gentile believers, what? Your salvation is dependent upon the Father being faithful to the promises to the patriarchs. Then he says in verse 12, and again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse. This is a cool passage. There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him all shall the Gentiles hope, or as we'll see, 
they'll place their confidence in. Now again, Paul's quoting from the Septuagint translation, this time of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. He quotes from Isaiah extensively. As I, I did, I, told, I think I mentioned this last week. The book of Romans is a, one of the fabulous, one of, it's, a, it's a book that's been studied and will continue to be studied for, for centuries, on into eternity. Because there's so many things in the book of Romans, and it's just a treasure chest. And I'm not the only one who says this. There's a lot of guys who say this throughout history. Luther, Calvin, you name it. Right up to our present day and age. Piper, a whole theme. There's a ton of doctrine in this particular epistle that we've studied. And we see that Paul quote. This is, we're coming up. I think this is, is actually is, oh, it's actually later on in the chapter. He's got one more quote from the Old Testament coming. That would make it 70 quote times he quotes from the Old Testament, which should tell us something. The Christian church should know their Old Testament. That's why we go Old Testament, New Testament here. And so they knew their Old Testament scriptures. And as I've said many times before, you should be reading from your Bible every day. I think Trent Jacoby, he goes every day. He, he, he's doing what I used to do. He, he has a, when I first started out, he, he had, uh, he's got McGee's commentary and I think he's got Dallas's Bible knowledge commentary. And he's going through every day. He'll read a couple of chapters in, in the Bible. He starts in Genesis and he's working his way through. And he'll read along with the commentary. I would suggest like J. Vernon McGee or Bible Knowledge Commentary. It's very, uh, it's not wicked in detail. Wicked, Massachusetts there. It's not extreme detail. It's not in deep detail like you have here. But what's good you should do, and I do it too, is you, every day you should be reading a couple of chapters from your Bible. And that's what you should do. And Trent does that every day. And that's what I do. And that's what all of us should do. Should not only have set aside time to prayer, for prayer, coming to Bible class, studying, following along with your pastor, but have your own private Bible study. Read from the Bible. And it's get, get yourself educated in the scriptures. And so it's good to, you know, get a good perusal through them and, uh, and, and get a good a general idea of what's being said. And J. Vernon McGee's got a, a great commentary. He's really funny. He's funnier than me, and that's not saying much. But anyways, he's, he, he's the guy I really turned me on to the Bible. J. Vernon McGee, he had this southern drawl, and he was, you know, one, and he was just amazing. And I used to listen to him on the radio all the time. He's, he's in, in the radios in different parts of the country. But you can actually download his audio, and it's, he's pretty funny. And he had this radio show that he did, and he was the, through the Bible in five years. I mean, he, he, I mean, he zipped through it. I mean, it was, but it was great, because as a, as a baby, I, I, I loved it. So I'm reading it, uh, I'm listening to him, and he had cancer at the time he did this. And the doctors are saying he didn't have much long to live, he didn't think he'd finish it. Well, he finished it. <laughs> he lived long, another 10 years. But anyways, uh, he's went home to be with the Lord, I'd say about 10, 15 years ago now. But he was the one who really got me into the Word of God. He's the one who I read where he said, if you really want to know what the Bible says, you have to learn from a pastor who teaches in the original languages. And that's when I started looking for a pastor who taught in the original languages, and Bob O'Glockland popped up, and, uh, and the rest is history. But anyways, uh, Paul here in Romans uh, 15.12, in Romans 15.12, he's quoting from Isaiah 11.10, uh, the Septuagint translation of this passage. Now, it says on the board from the, uh, the English Standard Version Bible, and I was talking to Titus before class, uh, that there's a lot of great translations, and you should have several. But if I was going to say... Um, when you're picking a translation, uh, there's different ways to translate the Bible. There's two, there's two different theories. There's a, a literal translation where as the words show up in the Greek, they try to translate them exactly as they come. However, that 
you can't always do that because any of you, anybody who's tried to translate a, lang- a foreign language into English knows that you can't do that. Exactly, you have to have what they call dynamic equi- equivalence as well, which is what the NIV is talking about. That means dynamic equivalence means they get the sense of the passage because if they translated it literally, it would be very wooden and it would sound really funny in English. Okay, now the ESV is what we call like if they like the New American Standard version. They're, they're more of a literal translation. Now, that's good for guys like me teaching you because it, it, it's actually going line for line what the original says. They're trying to, uh, trying to uh, uh, trans, uh, transpose each word uh, it literally as it comes, translated as it comes. So that helps me t- teaching you from the original languages. And ESV is really good. You can actually get their study Bible online for free on, on the Internet. And uh, also the Net Bible and... Uh, uh, Titus has got it. I got it. Titus got it, got me a Bible for Christmas. That Bible. That's a great. That's a great translation too, because it's got a lot of study notes as well as that, like the you know, the English Standard Version. However, the notes in the Net Bible, uh, they they complement what the the ESV and Net Bible complement each other, because the Net Bible has a lot of technical things in it too, that help you understand why they made the certain translations that they did. And uh, it really is good for scholars and guys who are tre- teaching the original languages, as well as lay people. So there's different ways. NIV is a good one. That's a dynamic equivalence. They try to get the sense of the idea of the passage. They're not as literal. And, uh, and so there's the NIV, the ESV, the Net Bible is good. New American Standard updated version is very good. The New Revised Standard version is a great translation. So there's, there's many. And then there's people, I might, might as well bring this up. People mention like, uh, the Living Bible. The Living Bible is what we call a paraphrase. That's not a translation. A paraphrase. They, they get, that's really, really, they just try to get the idea of it. It's almost like a guy's commentary. And the Message Bible is the same way. I would never, I mean, the Message Bible, I, I don't even find it entertaining to read the Message Bible because I'm looking at it and going, it, it's not what the original says, okay? It's not even close. It's a paraphrase. It's a much different than a translation. So, uh, if you want a good Bible that has great readability, the Net Bible is excellent readability. And the ESV as well. But I think the Net Bible and the NIV have better readability than, let's say, the New American Standard or the, the ESV. But uh, So that just gives you an idea about translation. I might as well throw that in since I'm mentioning the ESV translation in here. So uh, it says, Paul, remember, he's quoting in Romans 15, 12, Isaiah eleven ten, which from the ESV translation says this. And that day... The root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Now, pay attention to what he's saying here. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now, hold your place in Romans. Go to Isaiah 11.10. Let's see what the New American Standard says. Because I'm bringing this up because Paul does something a little bit different here. He's actually, the Septuagint actually paraphrases the Hebrew, and he quotes from it. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But look at Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11. Look at Isaiah chapter 11, and look at, look at verse 1, Isaiah 11, 1. Then a, root, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, speaking of Christ, 
who is a descendant of Jesse, David's father, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, or nor would make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his with it, uh, and the, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. You know it's kind of interesting. Up to verse three, that's quoted in the Gospels. Jesus quotes from that, but from that point on he doesn't because Jesus' ministry in his first advent only went up to verse three. When he comes back at his second advent, his millennial reign, the rest of it will be fulfilled. The chapter. Look at he says in, in verse 5. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf with the, and the young lion, and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. We saw this, this is the millennial reign he's talking about. Also, the cow and the beer will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, that even the animals, and the waters cover the sea. Then in that day, Paul quotes this in Romans fifteen twelve. <clears throat> then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. So there is what that verse Paul quotes. Now, the New American Standard in the ESV translation of Isaiah 11.10, they're quoting from the Hebrew, literally. It's a pretty much a literal translation of the Hebrew. Now, Paul, the Septuagint, is a little bit different. The Septuagint, and the, the abbreviation LXX is the abbreviation for the Septuagint. The Septuagint speaks of the root of Jesse, this is what it says in the Septuagint. Arising to, this is the literal translation of it. Arising to rule over the nations who place their confidence upon him. Whereas the Hebrew text says, the root of Jesse, the Messiah, will be standing as a signal flag to the nations and of him the nations will seek after. Now, I think the ESV says, he'll stand as a signal for the people. It's like a rallying cry for the people, it actually says in the Hebrew. So notice that the Septuagint says that Christ will arise to rule over the nations who place their confidence upon him, whereas the Hebrew text is saying the Messiah will stand as a signal flag to the nations, and of him the nations will seek after. So the statement that the root of Jesse will arise to rule is a paraphrase of the Hebrew statement, that the root of Jesse will stand as a signal flag to the nations. Paul chooses this Septuagint translation rather than the Hebrew simply because it suits his purposes better than the Hebrew. But nevertheless, remember, Paul's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit's guiding him to choose the Septuagint paraphrase of the Hebrew. So the basic meaning, either way you slice it, though, the basic meaning of both texts is the same. Why? Because the Septuagint is an acceptable paraphrase of the Hebrew. They have the same idea. Why? Both will allow Paul... To both uh, paraphrase and the literal translation of the Hebrew would allow Paul to support his argument in Romans 15, 8, and 9 that God's redemptive purpose through his Son includes both Jews and Gentiles. Now look, go back to Romans chapter 15, verse 12. Romans 15, 12. 
You know, as you, as you go back there, it's amazing how Paul uses the Old Testament. It's really, really interesting, and it's actually puzzled some scholars sometimes. And uh, I'll be sitting there, and I'll be, you know, they'll be going, hmm, Paul quotes, you know, he'll quote from the Septuagint, but it will, he'll quote from it, but it, it's not exact. And, and then he'll be like, what he's doing a lot of times is that the Septuagint doesn't translate the way it should be. He translates it correctly. So what you do is you look at the Septuagint, and in the translation of an Old Testament passage, and you compare it with what Paul has in Romans. So you look at it, and then you see, well, it's something, sometimes they, they vary. Well, you find out a lot of times, as we did, I think it's in chapter 10, that, you know, Paul, if he doesn't like a, the way the, tra- the Septuagint translated a certain Hebrew word, he changes it to what it should be, you know, and he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so he's guiding it. But he pretty much, a lot of times, he's, he's pretty much exact from what the, what the Septuagint says. So, it says in Romans 15, uh, Romans 15, 12, again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse. There shall come, now this is interesting, the word is emi, and it's the future middle indicative form, the, there shall come is the future middle indicative form of the verb emi, which means to live. And, it's a, and it refers, actually, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the expression, the root of Jesse, emphasizes that in his human nature, Christ was a descendant of King David. Now, follow me closely. The word is in the future tense. It's a predictive future. And it's predicting, from the perspective of Isaiah, that the Messiah will, as a certainty, cause himself to live by rising from the dead. I say causing himself to live because it's a causative middle. It's in the middle voice. It's called a causative middle. It indicates that the Messiah, from Isaiah's perspective in 752 B.C., he predicts that the Messiah will cause himself to live and it is the ultimate source behind the action of himself living. So this is talking about the fact that Jesus Christ, in his deity, is one of the agents in his own resurrection. He says, Remember he says in John 2, I'll tear down this, tear down this house, his body, and on the third day I'll raise it up again. He was talking about the Herodian temple. Yeah, that, that's all going to be torn down. And then he, that was predicted. That came to, uh, came to, uh, to fruition. But Jesus talked about his own, that he would raise himself up. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all involved in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the middle voice here, it's where it says, there shall come, the word there in the Greek means live, and it's in the causative middle. It means he will cause himself to live. That's talking about his resurrection. Now, the root of Jesse, that expression means that Jesus Christ is the promised descendant of King David, whose father was Jesse, indicating that he fulfills, Jesus Christ does, Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, fulfills God's promise to David that a descendant of his will sit on his throne forever. Now, this word, which is translated root, ridza, is, is in Romans 15, 12, also is, appears in Roman, uh, Revelation 5, 5 and Revelation 22, 16. Let me show you these translations from the Net Bible on the board. Revelation 5, 5. Then one of the elders said to me, John, stop weeping. Look, the lion from the tribe... Remember, there was nobody who could open the scrolls. Not in heaven and not on earth. Who was worthy enough to open the scrolls. That's why John was crying. That means that the, not even the angels were worthy to open the scrolls. Only the lamb was. Which tells you that the re- angels had fallen too. That's another story, a long story for another day. Stop weeping, he says. Look, 
the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root, same word that appears in Romans 15, 12. The root of David has conquered. Thus he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Again for the Net Bible, Revelation twenty two sixteen, I, Jesus, this is the last words of the, last, some of the last words in the Bible. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. What he wrote in Revelation. I am the root, same word again, and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now the Davidic quote, remember, so the root of Jesse, Jesse was David's father. So he's talking here, Paul is, and Isaiah is, about the Davidic covenant. What's the Davidic covenant? It's one of the four unconditional covenants to Israel. We study this quite a bit in our studies here in Genesis and the Day of the Lord series. The Davidic covenant deals with a dynasty that will rule the nation of Israel, as indicated by 2 Samuel 7.16, where God promised King David that a descendant of his would sit on his throne forever. And that was, talk about grace, and that was at the end of his life, and that was after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, knocked her up, then to cover it up, he got tried to get her husband uh, drunk to, to, to make her, him go in to have sex with her to cover up the whole thing. He was too, had too much integrity, so he ends up killing the guy on the battlefield. And then we have a big disaster with that. Dave, God, was disciplined, God disciplined David, and so Dave, this is after all that stuff, and yet God still made this promise to King David. You know what that's called, people? Grace. And what grace is, we don't earn or deserve a thing. Not even the man after God's own heart. King David. The Holy Spirit said that, Paul, that, that David was a man after his own heart. And yet he still did atrocious, atro, atrocious things in his life. But he loved God. It means he, he, did, he, he didn't earn or deserve anything. God did this because to bring himself glory. So bring his grace, his grace policy glory. Bring him glory. That's what it's all about, bringing him glory. So the Davidic covenant, again, deals with a dynasty that will rule the nation of Israel as indicated by 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, where God promised David that a descendant of his would sit on his throne forever. It says in 2 Samuel seven sixteen, Your house, David, and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. It's going to be Jesus Christ will fulfill it. That's why Jesus Christ, one of his three titles, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Son of God, Son of Man, Son of David. That's the fourth one. Son of David talks about he's, his, his, uh, he's the ruler over the house of David, Israel. It's interesting. King David, we're going to study this in our next Millennial Reign series, our Day of the Lord series, about the Millennial Reign, where the, the, the sacrifices, many of the Levitical sacrifices will be reinstituted in the millennial reign, we're going to show you the reasons why that is. But it's interesting. King David will be in a resurrection body, and he will offer sacrifices. Not for sin, but he will offer sacrifices to demonstrate his love and appreciation and his obedience to God. He'll, he'll take part in, the, in the sacri- some of the sacrifices. So he will lead Israel in a resurrection body and worshiping Jesus Christ. And the rebuilt Jewish temple, which we're going to talk about in the next Day of the Lord series as well, in, in June 6th, I think it is. So, Second uh, Samuel seven sixteen, Your house, David, and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, look at Romans fifteen twelve again, please. We're near the end here. 
Romans 15, 12. And again, Isaiah says, there shall come, or he will cause himself, the root of Jesse, he will, I will come, he will cause himself to live, the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. So he who arises is also talking about resurrection here. He who arises is the present, middle, and participle form of the word, of the verb, anistimi. And that means to cause oneself to live again after having once died. Paul's writing rhetorically. Those, the two statements, there shall come the root of Jesse and he who arises are parallel statements. That's when you're writing rhetorically, that's what they will do a lot of times for emphasis. So he who arises means to cause oneself to live again after having died. Now, the middle voice of the verb is very important, like we saw with Emi. It's a causative middle, just as well, indicating that the Messiah will thus cause himself to rise again from the dead and is the ultimate source behind this action. Now, don't miss this. You're finding this out because I'm telling you what the original says. When Jesus, after his resurrection, he went to his disciples. Remember the, on the road to Emmaus? Remember that? And he was telling them from their, the law and the prophets, it, it says there, that I'm going to rise from the... Wasn't the Messiah supposed to rise from the dead? These are the verses he was showing them. I'll tell you right now, he was showing them. It doesn't say that, but we know what he had to be because Isaiah was a big prophet and Isaiah spoke of the resurrection of Christ just like the Psalms did. And they should have seen that in their own Bible. But they didn't. They were heart to heart. And he rebuked them for that. And so these are some of the verses that undoubtedly Jesus went to to tell the disciples on the road to Emmaus, even his own disciples, the other guys, Peter, James, and John, I was supposed, the Messiah's got to rise from the dead. I can't, I had to die so I could rise from the dead and fulfill the scriptures. That's one of the reasons why I had to die and rise again. So this word, anistomy, is in the causative middle voice indicating that the Messiah will cause himself to rise again from the dead and is the ultimate source behind the action. Remember, from Isaiah wrote this in 750 B.C. approximately. So that this is being from, uh, spoken of from his perspective. Now, the, it's a futuristic present, which is interesting. It's used to describe the resurrection of Christ from the perspective of when Isaiah lived when he wrote this prophecy, emphasizing the certainty of it taking place. It's interesting what he did. He didn't put it in the future tense. He puts it in a futuristic present, and that's because he wants to emphasize the certainty that the Messiah would rise from the dead. That's why he put it in the present, present tense. And then we have the phrase, to rule. That's an infinitive form of the verb, arco, which means to rule or govern, and with the implication, people, of a preeminent position and status. That preeminent position and status is ruler of the world. Jesus Christ is the preeminent, has the preeminent position and status, not only in the church, but in the house of David, Israel. And also over this earth, since he sits at the right hand of the Father as King of kings and Lord of lords. So we see that he, this word tells us that he's a ruler, that he has a preeminent status and position. Thus, all pastors and all evangelists and all Christian musicians and anybody who thinks that they're a superstar in the Christian way of life must bow to him. It's all about him. It's not about us. And this word says he's a ruler. So to rule there, this word speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ ruling over the Gentiles. That's what it's speaking of. And it's in the infinitive form, as I said before. It's an infinitive of purpose, and that indicates the goal or the purpose 
of the action of the controlling verb, which is anistemi. And this indicates to us that Christ rose again from the dead for a purpose. What's that? In order that he would rule over the Gentiles. By rising for, by dying and rising from the dead, he will demonstrate, he will draw, he will draw all men to himself. He will fulfill the Old Testament scriptures and the Gentiles would flock to him. And this is still happening right up to our very day. As I said Sunday, you and I are fulfilling prophecy. Our worship of Jesus Christ, turning to him for salvation, worshiping him was all predicted in the Old Testament. So you could say to your friends, I'm, I'm, I'm fulfilling prophecy. I'm fulfilling old times. In fact, if somebody, here's a good one, somebody says the Bible's not true, I'm fulfilling. The fact that I'm a Gentile that believe in Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, is predicted in the Old Testament. And you could show them these verses and say, see, right there, I can prove the Bible speak, is, is, is the inspired God, word of God. It's inspired. Because of what? Fulfilled prophecy. And I'm living proof. I'm living proof. That'll shut them up. They have any humility. Now this futuristic present tense of the verb is used to describe Christ ruling over the Gentiles from the perspective of when Isaiah lived, when he wrote this prophecy, emphasizing the certainty of it taking place. Over the nations, that refers, of course, to the Gentiles. It means this prepositional, this particular phrase, over the nations, it talks about the Gentiles subordinating, being subordinate to the Lord Jesus Christ, he, he being their king. In him is actually connected to the, uh, the phrase, the Gentiles shall hope. Shall, uh, the Gentiles ho- shall hope that follows in him, they're connected together. In him marks the Lord Jesus Christ as the object in which the Gentiles' faith or absolute confidence would rest for eternal salvation. Shall hope is the word alpizo. It means to place one confidence to place one's confidence in somebody. It indicates that the Gentiles will place their confidence upon the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal salvation. It talks about faith. You know, when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're having, you're demonstrating your confidence that He, when you die, He will raise you up again. That you will live, even though you die physically, you will live. So you're actually putting your confidence in Him for your salvation, your deliverance, that you, for your future. Thus, why do we worry about our future? The worst thing that we have to worry about is death, physical death, the worst fear in the human race, and that's been conquered. And I laugh when people say, you know, like, oh, you know, dying. It's like, man, the more I go on, I'm not, especially if he's a Christian, I'm not crying for that person. I'm sorry. I'll cry for myself that I'm still down here or I miss them. But, I, you know, it's like, you know, with Abby. Hey, she's with the Lord. There's no problems now. She's happy with the Lord, with her father, singing with the angels. You know, I mean, they're probably hanging out with Gabriel for all we know. Who knows what they were do- they're doing up there. I know they're worshiping the Lord. I know they see him face to face because the Bible says that. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. You know, what do we have to worry about? Even death, death can't separate us from the love of God. Didn't, hey, didn't we read that in Romans 8? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So that's because we put our trust in somebody who you can hang your head on. Who you can play, you can, you don't need insurance policy when you have Jesus. <laughs> Shall hope. So the f- future tense of this word, Elpizo, is predictive. It's a predictive future tense, predicting that the Gentiles will, as a certainty, place their confidence upon the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal salvation. So let's wrap it up with a few comments here about this verse to summarize. 
Romans 15, 12, we see that Paul citing the Septuagint translation of Isaiah eleven ten. Why? To support his affirmation in verses 8 and 9 that God's redemptive purpose through his Son not only includes the Gentiles, but also the, the, not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Remember, in context, he wants the Jews and Gentile believers to get along with each other and not to divide over non-essentials. Now, he's quoting Old Testament scripture to make sure that they do that. See, I'm showing you scripture. He's not even, he's not even saying, using his own statements and authority as an apostle. He's using the Old Testament as his authority. He's using their, its authority, even though he had the authority on, as an apostle to, to say what he had to say. He used the Old Testament so that they could see for themselves in their own Bible that this is the case. Now, this citation from Isaiah 11.10 is, again, a prophecy of Israel's Messiah, which predicts that he will cause himself to live again. Specifically, he will cause himself to rise again from the dead in order to rule over the Gentiles. Isaiah predicts that upon him, the Gentiles will place their confidence for eternal salvation. And of course, this prediction was fulfilled and is being fulfilled today. And Paul's readers, who were Gentile, are living proof. And you are, and I am, also. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that the Holy Spirit would uh, encourage us with the things that we've heard. Instruct us, Father. Guide us, rebuke us if necessary. We thank you, we love you, and we thank you for the gift of your Son for coming to save us wicked sinners, us Gentile sinners. And thank you for including us in the plan of salvation, Father, and that we can worship you and your Son, Jesus Christ, through the rest of eternity and, and do it even now. We just thank you for this privilege that you've given us to worship you through the study of your word. We pray again that this class will be a blessing to us and give us traveling mercies on the way home for those of us in the chapel. And we pray that the Spirit would empower the fellowship after. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.